podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Chelsea. Well, here we are. It's the end of another week, or is it the start of the next? I never know. Anyway, we've got two games to talk about. And here to discuss what's been going on, we have Mr. Andy Saunders, as usual. Hello, Andy. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Not bad, not bad. Even after what's gone over the last week, I'm feeling positive. Um, we'll, We'll go into this a bit more later, but I have a very special guest for us, or we have a very special guest. We haven't seen him since last season. Um, he's been making his own transfers here, there and everywhere. It's Mr. Liam Toomey, who is the Chelsea writer for The Athletic. Hello, Liam. And how are you? Hello, guys. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, it's been a pretty mad summer. Quite a lot has happened to me, but all good. Lots of all good. OK, it sounds like you're in. Tell a, us in about a... The Athletic. Tell... Yeah, tell us about The Athletic, Liam. What, what, what is that for those that don't know? Well, it's an American company. It's a um, app and website, which is trying to do something that's really been tried in sports journalism, at least in the UK before, um, which is to create a product that is advert-free, um, clickbait-free, that people be of actually just paying for. And it's it's traditionally a month, um, although they do all the time and we launched at the beginning of august with i'm sure you know a lot of people who followed some of the star names that they've hired they've, they've spared no expense and hired me <laughs> so it's, it's been a since the launch beginning some some great strides and now i have simon johnson formerly of the evening standard also in chelsea with me we've got uh, dom fifield from guardian being in and out of Chelsea and doing broader London football stuff. So we've, we've got an awful lot of talent and, uh, and it's really good to, to work with them and, and learn from them. So it's been exciting times for me. So Andy, are you, are you subscribed to The Athletic? Not yet, but I'm certainly, um, I'm certainly tempted. I like a long read and I think that's something that's been missing, I think, in a lot of sports writing is, is this idea of the long read. We got so used to these bite-sized, uh, internet-based, news-style type pieces that we've forgotten the, the pleasure there is in sitting down with a 1,000 words or 2,000 words and really reading something in depth. And I know, Liam, that's something you're enjoying doing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a, it's a big challenge to try and tell, tell Chelsea fans something they don't know with every single piece because that is always the the aspiration now and the the demand really um especially because i think if you look on twitter obviously there's uh, all sorts of disagreements and all sorts of opinions out there but i think at least at the top end football fans have have never been more educated or had more information available to them so it's it's harder to actually find things to tell them that they're, they're not already aware of um but i'm enjoying the challenge and it's and and i think we've we've managed to do some really good work already would you say that actually we're, we're in the age, this is kind of like w- what we're seeing in literature, whereby people are, are, are now 
fighting back and wanting to to have actual physical copies of books as opposed to just digital media and, and things and that in in this kind of way we're fighting back against the instantaneous here's a story it's probably not true but what the hell it doesn't matter because we'll make something else up tomorrow or there'll be a rumor that's spread tomorrow that actually we are now getting back to being thoughtful and and, and getting this process together whereby we can regroup and really enjoy, as Andy says, a two thousand word article. Well, I think more than the more than the demand, I think there's a need for it in this day and age because what you know, social media has done some amazing things for 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 us as a society. But I think one of the bad things is that it shortened all of our collective attention spans, and you don't even realise it happening. But you you get used to digesting information in in little chunks that take seconds rather than minutes of your time. And even if it's unverified, unsubstantiated information, it kind of wears down your filter and your, your critical thinking. That, so, uh, without, without trying to be too pretentious about it, you know, something like The Athletic is trying to, or when, making a worthy bet, really, a noble bet, that people still want to read things that take a bit of time, that require a bit of, a bit of attention and a bit of thinking about, and uh, maybe make them see something that they hadn't really considered before or, or tell them a story that they weren't aware of before. And Andy, do you think uh, in your work in PR, where you're representing artists and working with them, are you finding that you're getting more people now coming to you and saying, hey, we'd like to do a more in-depth piece with so-and-so, and as opposed to, can you give me a news item about this person or that person? Well, the kind of the field that I operate in, which is the kind of corporate side of it rather than the artist side of it. I mean, I did that for many years, but I now work mainly with companies in the music industry rather than rather than the actual artists. Yes, there is more of a demand for thought leadership type pieces where where you're able to tell a story over a longer period with a bigger narrative arc um, and to you know, get away from, as, as, as you both mentioned, this bite-sized approach to either news or information. It's all about context. And the one thing about a long read is that it gives you context. Uh, and there's been a few things this week, and I'm sure we'll come, uh, come on to talk about, for example, Jose Mourinho's con- uh, comments after the game uh, on Sunday, that a lot of people said, well, that was taken out of context. Um, and when you're only working in 240 characters or you're working on a, you know, a bite-sized news piece for a, for a sports platform, you're not able to give that context and things can spiral out of control really quickly. So as a, as a PR, as a publicist, I like a long read because it allows us to tell a much more in-depth story. And it allows you to to elaborate and and show all sides of a story, because as you so rightly say, 240 words usually gives you one side of a discussion or an argument, depending which way it goes. So I I, I think for 240 words, 240 characters, you know, it's, it's, you know, 240 words would be a luxury on Twitter. Yeah, that, that's true. I did mean characters. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. But I, I like this, this, that we're into this age of the thoughtful approach and, and, and getting things back because I do think so many spats and arguments happen over people taking things out of context. So let, let's hope that, you know, this, this helps improve the way people view situations and, and what's going on at the present day. Okay, so taking into context everything that we're talking about. Uh, Let's move back last week to Champions League. Valencia uh, at home 
Everyone told us it was going to be a shoe-in. They were in absolute disarray. They'd lost their manager. They'd had five thump passing by Barcelona. No one was talking to the media. Did you believe a single word of it, Liam? Um, no, I did not. <laughs> I actually looked up on Google Translate the Spanish for siege mentality because that, that was the... <laughs> That was definitely the vibe that was coming off Valencia heading into that game. You know, they're, they're a very talented European squad. They're a very experienced European club. And you're never, ever going to have, or, or at least you can never bank on having an easy game home or away against a team like that in Europe. Um, I always thought that this Champions League group was going to be open, especially with you know, such a fresh, young look to this Chelsea team and with a, a fresh, young manager in charge. And I think it's panning out that way. And that the one benefit of being in a group like this is that I think an early misstep like the one that Chelsea had against Valencia need not be fatal because I think it's very possible, despite the fact that Ajax swept Lille aside in the other game, it's very possible that the other teams take points off each other as this group progresses. And so if you drop, a, if you drop some points early on, you can still get it back. Having said that, it obviously wasn't a, a good start for Chelsea. It wasn't the, the Champions League debut as a manager that, that Lampard wanted. Um, but it, it was just a, a case, a little bit like the Liverpool game, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well, where the, the fine margins and the certain situations, particularly set pieces that Chelsea didn't manage well, ended up making the difference. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a very valid point. I mean, Andy, uh, what were your views on it as the game started developing? Did you go, oh, this this isn't going to be quite as we planned this this whole scenario? Well, I think when we lost Mason Mount to injury early on, uh, that kind of set the tone a little bit, really. Um, and I don't know, we we dominated in most areas of the game. We just couldn't really create anything of note. Um, it looked like we were slightly impotent in the transition between midfield and attack. Um, and there wasn't an X factor about the team that you might have expected coming off of you know a good win the previous weekend. So I, I think it was disappointing for everybody involved. You know, we, we came close on a couple of occasions and, and clearly if the penalty had gone in it would have been a different story I think it was just one of those irritating frustrating nights but I think like Liam I never took Valencia lightly at all and I don't think you can take any team in this competition lightly it would be madness to do so I'm sure you called him a Spanish pub side last week didn't you <laughs> no <laughs> you know but you know it, it is fair to say that you know that coming into the game they were in a fairly shambolic situation they'd sacked their manager there was a lot of um discord uh, amongst the fans uh, regarding the manager and the board things didn't look great for them coming into the game but champions league does does tend to you know throw up some some interesting surprises so as i say you can take all of that previous context um but you really have to put it to one side once the game starts i think that's fair enough and i i, I there's two points that i'd like to discuss now uh, with you liam is were you when mason mount came off and had to be subbed were you surprised at how much that seemed to affect the team and also 
are you are we seeing exactly what happens when you have a young side that's a mixture of we've got some great experienced players in there but the younger players that we're going to get these kind of days where things may go right they may go wrong and we'll talk about some other ideas of where i think things have gone wrong later in the in the show but missing mason mount it, it was extraordinary wasn't it yeah it was and i think it's a testament to how brilliant Mount has been in these opening weeks and how well he has adjusted you know having that comfort level having worked with Frank Lampard Jody Morris last season um, to jump straight into this Chelsea team and, and not just be a big player but also even be a decisive player in the opening weeks I actually think he's been the most impressive young player that Lampard has given an opportunity to um, so in one sense I wasn't surprised because he's already become kind of the symbol of this new team and the most creative player in the final third um, it's also a mark of the fact that, that Chelsea are trying to create a brand new attack really you know the guy that they built everything around since 2012 has just left for Real Madrid and Chelsea's game plan in so many games last year was just give the ball to Eden and hope he does something and, and often he did they don't have that anymore and it has to be a collective responsibility to pick up the slack and when you have that sudden shift in dynamic coupled with so many young players the last thing to arrive is consistency so you will have games like Wolves where everything clicks you get a Tamori goal to open them up but then you're, you're clinical you're ruthless Abraham is, is on it Mount is on it and, and everything works and it's great but you will also have days like the Valencia game where you're up against a capable opponent who's trying to take away what you want to do. And it doesn't quite work and the young guys don't quite have it. And I think a lot of Chelsea's experienced players have gotten out, particularly their attacking players, have gotten out of the culture of being the ones to make the difference because so long they look to Hazard to do it that it's an adjustment for them now to have to try and do more on the ball and, and while that is the case Chelsea will have these ups and downs but I don't think it's anything to get too um, too high or too low about I think it's all a bit early stages of a process for Lampard Andy I mean I guess for you you know we've been going for years and years and we have noticed especially in the last few years the tolerance level of the crowd has got less and less. The more we've won, the less tolerant we've been. But there really seems to be a marking point. And we'll talk about what happened after the Liverpool game later on. But Valencia, it's another point in order that we are supporting the team. I mean, you've said it a lot on here over the last couple of years, the clues in the name, supporter, support your team. And it, it's quite a magical feeling to feel what feels like unity in the ground, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. And it shouldn't be a magical feeling. It should be the norm. But the fact of the matter is, over the last couple of years, particularly last year, it's been toxic. You know, going to the games has been, on occasion, a deeply unpleasant experience when you hear the emotional incontinence of some of our fans screaming at the players and screaming, screaming into the void about the, the misery they're experiencing. And Whilst I have some sympathy for that, I don't think necessarily that that's a you know that's in any way something that that we should be doing as supporters. So when I'm going to a game now and hearing people saying positive things and being more relaxed about 
the situation and understanding the fact that this is a transitional season, that we have a transfer ban, that we are playing young players, which is what so many of us wanted um, and have called for over the last couple of years. Everything we've wanted, we've got. So we can't be churlish and then complain when things don't quite go to plan. So to answer your question... It's great, and that Valencia was a you know a sign of real patience. Although there was some frustration around the Barkley situation, but I think that's natural. I was frustrated by it, but there wasn't that kind of toxic hatred uh, and misery in the ground. Um, it was much more understanding, um, and that was carried on into the Liverpool game, and I hope will carry on throughout the whole season. It's really, really good to see in here. Well, actually, you, you've talked about, I suppose, the incident for us in, in that game. Uh, the whole penalty incident, you know, getting given it, how we were given it, and then what happened. Uh, what was your take on it, Andy, first off, before I get Liam's professional long prose version? Well, you know, we could probably spend a whole evening talking about VAR and the merits and the benefits and the, you know, the the downsides of it. But the fact of the matter is, it's here to stay. Well, certainly for this season. So there's no point getting upset about it and letting it ruin your day. It it is what it is. So there are things that could be hugely improved about VAR. Certainly letting us in the ground know what's happening for one thing. Um, and in that incident, it went in our favour. We managed to, you know, to to have a penalty. Uh, and there was some confusion over the penalty taker. Uh, Ross Barkley uh, took the ball uh, and missed the penalty when a lot of people thought that he maybe shouldn't have done and that someone like Jorginho uh, would be a better option. And subsequently in the press conference afterwards, Frank Lampard made it very clear that Barkley was a designated penalty taker. So who knows where the, where the truth and reason lies in all of this. Uh, the fact of the matter is we were awarded a penalty and we missed it. That's the bottom line. Okay, Liam, over to you. You were you were probably in that press conference. Um, do we think that Frank told a slight fib that actually there was a bit of an argument going on and Ross got his way and it didn't work out well and looked quite ugly? Well, we were certainly prepared for that to be the case because I've been told by another journalist that Lampard had, had kind of stifled a laugh. As he um, as he said that Barkley was his preferred penalty taker during the TV interview immediately after the game, but then he said it and kept a completely straight face in in the press conference. He seemed serious, and I have no reason to doubt him. I mean, obviously he he didn't really have any other option anyway. He couldn't come out and say, "Oh, Barkley was insubordinate. He took it upon himself." You don't do that to one of your own players, even a manager who is as relatively inexperienced as Frank Lampard knows that. Um, but having said that, Barkley had scored two penalties in pre-season with Jorginho on the pitch. Um, so there was a sign, at least, that he was um, being trusted with that responsibility by Lampard. And so if he says Barkley was the penalty taker and then Barkley speaking to reporters after the game says, yes, I was, I was the penalty taker, I don't think you can really doubt it. Um, where the confusion might have come in is that Jorginho and uh, and I think Willian were maybe the other penalty takers, the other designated penalty takers on the pitch. But then because Barkley was a second half substitute, by Lampard's thinking, he would assume that responsibility. Maybe that wasn't entirely clear in the moment. 
personally, I would have had Jorginho taking that kick every single time. I think he's a more experienced penalty taker. He's got a more effective, tried and trusted technique. He's only missed one for Chelsea. Um, and he scored some really high pressure ones as well. I don't think Willian covered himself in glory in particular, not just asking to take the penalty. When I think he's taken three penalties in his Chelsea career in the, in the six years he's been at the club, and then having asked and being told by Barkley that no, I'm fine, he then stands next to him and pulls his socks up while Barkley is already facing a fairly long wait that Valencia players had, had made sure to make as long as possible by protesting with the referee. In the end, it was no surprise to me that Barkley missed because he had so many distractions and so many opportunities to, to doubt himself and to think about it. Um, that it that it went wrong in the end and it was a bad moment for him he obviously got a kicking from from, from a major well a minority of Chelsea fans it's always hard to tell how many on social media and it but I just think it was a moment that didn't really cover anyone in glory and and what should have been a draw turns into a defeat you know how, what, answer I, me this answer me this how when Barkley comes on as a substitute in the 80th minute is he the designated penalty taker because the way that like, comes on for the last 10 minutes yeah. can't can't be the designated penalty taker. And also, when the penalty occurs four minutes after you come onto the pitch, and obviously there's three minutes of buggering about the VAR, he's taking the penalty on the 87th minute. I mean, none of that adds up to a good situation to me. No, no, I think it is a grey area. And Lampard explained it by just saying, I've got an order in, in terms of the players that are on the pitch the guy who's highest on that list who's on the pitch takes the kick and as soon as Barkley came on he is he was at the top of that list um I think you I, I think you can have a more you can you can have your qualms with that system I think you can also have the, your qualms with the selection of Barkley in the first place I would have had Jorginho for the reasons I said I think he's a more experienced penalty taker and just he's already probably one of the closest things Chelsea have to an established leader in a team that doesn't seem to have a lot of on-pitch leadership so it would have been him for me but I think it was just and what's your view on Barkley what's your view on Barkley generally I mean I tweeted afterwards that you know we can we can moan about the penalty all we like but but it is what it is the wider picture for me is that once the uh full complement of our midfield players comes back he's getting nowhere near that starting lineup he's 26 years old and going backwards as far as I'm concerned well, I think it's a difficult one with Barkley because he's had two pretty promising pre-seasons in a row that have then fizzled out fairly early into the competitive campaign. Um, he he was really eager to impress Sarri last summer, and I think he did. And it, it, he, he, he got into the team ahead of Loftus-Cheek in the opening months of the season and actually did quite well, probably in August, before fizzling out a little bit. And then this year... He was really determined to impress Lampard as well. And you can't fault his work ethic. He has good moments. I just think he's always struck me as a player, Barkley, who can do really good really good things, but never seems to consistently put it all together. And I think we're at the age, like you say, he's mid-20s now. You just have to accept that's the player he is. And I think he'll be a decent squad player for Chelsea. He, he was good value for the price they got him. He ticks a homegrown box. So from a cynical, pragmatic point of view, there's nothing really wrong with having him there. 
but I agree. I don't think if Chelsea are where they want to be, that he'll be a regular starter or even maybe an infrequent starter. I think he's more of a squad player. You know, for me, I, I'll tell you, I think that's that's a really good summation of, of Barkley. I think it's his execution that lets him down. I think he's got what, the right ideas. Sorry, I'm going to challenge you on this. Where do you think, where, what, this intelligence thing, where, how does that manifest itself to you? I, I see him attempt passes that just don't work out. I think he makes, okay, maybe he makes the, the wrong decisions or the right decisions at the wrong time. I certainly wouldn't put it down to intelligence. Um, what do you think, Liam? Do you think he's intelligent or do you think he's just a little bit... I think uh, I think he's not always been the quickest to absorb new tactical concepts. Um, but I've also, you know, he also spoke really well last year about the fact that he wasn't really coached in that way at Everton. Um, and I think if you don't get that kind of coaching between the ages of sort of 16 and 21, those formative years where you're you're becoming the player you're going to be, it's quite difficult to pick it up at a later date. And I think he did make strides last year under Sarri. I think Sarri did improve him tactically, his, his knowledge of where to be, playing in a slightly deeper midfield role in a three. Um, but he, like I said, I think he's, he's got all the physical and technical tools, which has always made him quite a frustrating player. But he just doesn't consistently put it all together. And I think he'll occasionally do something um, that catches the eye or maybe even makes a difference in a game. But I don't think he's ever going to be the kind of player that you rely on for those contributions. If you get them, they're a bonus. But you don't want to be in a position where you're building your midfield around him. All right, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take it back. He's not a fully intelligent player. Okay, that's that. I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to to cane him. I mean, he's a Chelsea player, so I'll back him 100. percent You know, I'm frustrated with him because he's a player that came in, and we thought, well, maybe he's going to be the creative spark in that midfield that's going to allow us to to you know to play an expansive form of football, or or if if not that, he's going to have the the ability and the maturity to to fit into a midfield and play a certain way. And, and neither of those things have happened for me. And, I think people still see him as a developing player. And that's what frustrates me. At 26 years old, you are no longer a developing player. As Liam says, we have to accept that is the player he is now. And for me, as much as I don't like to cane any Chelsea player, this is just a an observation. I don't think that there's a progression in Ross Barkley that fills me with any confidence that he can hold a place down in 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 a in a uh, an ambitious Chelsea team. Uh, okay, I, I think you. I think you're right, especially when we see what's happening from younger players who are seemingly already learning from mistakes. So, okay, uh, I, I, I take my my hat off to that. I think I think that's fair enough. I would say, lastly, before we go to a break, there's two things. One, the person who comes out of this with the most credit for me is Frank Lampard over the penalty incident. Yes, he did come out with a wry smile that told you everything. And then, yes, he did come out and support Ross Barkley. So he worked it out and then told the press, you ain't going to get a rise out of me. And I think that shows a man who understands what he needs to do and how he needs to protect his players. What I would love to have seen was the discussion the next day at training when probably he probably had a bit of a go at William and Jorginho and William in particular. Anyway, we should go to, to a break. And just before that, 
just say to, to Liam, I hope you're having a good time. I know it's a bit noisy where Liam is, but now since he's been doing this, this uh, long-form writing, he's got a huge fan club that follows him everywhere, and he's just gone off to talk to them for a minute. You can hear them in the background. It's the Liam Toomey fan club. Okay, we'll be back <laughs> after this break, and we'll speak to you soon. And we're back. Okay, so we should we should move on unless anyone's got any other points to make about the Champions League other than, yeah, I think Liam's right. We've got a good chance to go forward because of the nature of our group. I think a lot of people will take points off each other. We move on to Liverpool. Um, for you, Andy, how did you see this game? We, we knew it was going to be tough. You know, we're worried about the front three running up our back four, five, three, whatever it was going to be, ragged. Um, what did you What did you think going into the ground on on Sunday? Did you think our defence is in for a torrid time? Yeah, of course. And I think anybody that didn't was slightly deluded. I mean, Liverpool are, much as I hate to say, a very, very good team with a very, very good chance of winning the Premier League title this year. And anybody that thinks that that was going to be a, a an easy uh, game against the quality of their front-running players, um, you know, I, th- I think if you thought that before the game, you were, you were kidding yourself a little bit. However, as the game panned out... Um, it, you know, it wasn't as uh, it wasn't as stark as as we thought it was initially. Losing players to injury early on, um, you know, losing Emerson and losing Christensen early on threw our defence into disarray. But they coped with it amazingly well. And I think that one thing that really came out of the game, and there's lots of real positives that came out of the game: the fan reaction, the the uh, the response in the second half, uh, the sheer passion shown by all the players on the pitch and the fans in the stands all of that stuff was was amazing and and anybody that that came out of that ground not absolutely buzzing about the performance that we put in the second half and how we rose to the challenge that was put in despite the result and it's perfectly fine to be upset about the result I was absolutely upset about the result nobody likes to lose to Liverpool nobody likes to lose particularly at Stamford Bridge but I think Again, going back to the idea that this is a special season, a special circumstance with uh, a special set of players. If you can't get off on the fact that we played out of our skins in that second half, you know, um, this isn't the season for you. No, OK. Well, that, 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 there's loads of things you've mentioned there. Pretty much the whole rest of the programme you, you've summed up in, in, a, in a, a speech, which I think is absolutely spot on with what sums up that whole day. Um, the one thing I'd like to pick up on immediately is this whole idea, you know, and we've seen, I'm referring to Mourinho's quote about, you know, I hope the fans, I don't know if either of you got it written down or to hand, but the the idea that, you know, if you're clapping a loss like that, then perhaps you're, you know, you've got to be careful because you're not going to be a big club and big clubs don't clap losses and defeats. It was kind of taken out of context. He was being devil's advocate. But the principle is that where we've been in in the past couple of years or whatever, with performances, with the way things are, we've never been in a situation like this, which is trying to get to some new promised land. And actually, you can find so much that was wonderful about Sunday's performance against Liverpool that, yes, you are going to applaud. Yes, you are going to support. And yes, you are going to say, you know what? That defeat, it offered us an awful lot. 
and a lot of hope about the future. How do you view it there, Liam? Well, I think the, the applause at the end and the general positivity was a reflection of a couple of things. I think, first of all, it's a reflection of the fact that Liverpool are reigning European champions and based on last season, statistically, one of the best teams in Premier League history, whether they won the title or not. This is a, an incredible Liverpool team, the best for 30, 40 years. Chelsea are not in their class. They finished 25 points behind them last season with a much more experienced squad. Um, so, to, to compete with them over 90 minutes, to have them hanging on in the last sort of 20, and, and really Liverpool were quite relieved to hear the final whistle by the end of it, um, is a significant achievement. And it's obviously not the sort of achievement that the Chelsea fans have traditionally been satisfied with during the Abramovich era. They've generally set their standards higher. But as Andy says, this is a unique set of circumstances. And I think Lampard is being judged by different standards to any previous Abramovich manager because when when this was Conte, when this was Sarri, when, you only had the result to, to hang on to because Chelsea weren't building for anything more than today. It was about the result today. It was about winning trophies this season, not anything else. Whereas the, the youngsters that Lampard is making central to this team... Um, signal that this is something longer term and there's there's a building process here and you're going to have to accept a temporary drop in standards and the challenge for Lampard and for everyone else at Chelsea is to ensure that it doesn't become a lasting drop in standards but there is no way you can avoid the fact that Chelsea are going to take a step back they lost Eden Hazard they you know they lost two experienced centre forwards who okay didn't really work for them last year but they they're relying on 20, 21-year-olds in key positions. So I think it's completely understandable that Chelsea fans, at least in the stadium, are looking at this in a different way. And I think the, you know, the young players are the, are the thing that they should be most excited about right now. So the positivity didn't surprise me. And I thought overall, it was a fairly encouraging Chelsea performance against, as I stress again, a great Liverpool team. Okay, so uh, this is an interesting discussion because for me, the youngsters are are stepping up to the plate. And we had two players go off in the defence, as you mentioned, Andy. Um, Zuma came on, but also the other person that you have to say has just been wonderful to watch and you're watching him grow with each game is Tamori. What did you make of those two, Andy? Well, both were immense. I mean, properly immense. Zuma, when he came on, you're thinking, oh, this this could get messy. Uh, you know, he's a decent player. Uh, he's a decent player against de- decent teams. But Liverpool, as Liam said, are, are more than a decent team. They're an elite team. I hate saying that. You know, it makes me feel dirty saying it, but they are. They're <laughs> a very, very good team. But And so Zuma coming in for Christensen, I just thought he's going to get ripped to shreds here. But he was brilliant. And as for Tamori, I I thought we looked at a player on that pitch on Sunday and we saw what that boy can be in one or two years. You know, he can be a top, top player. I still think his ball distribution is a bit naive sometimes, but his positioning, his aggression, his tackling, his calmness on the ball, I just thought it was way, way beyond his years. Hugely impressive. Liam, uh, how do they fit for you? Uh, what are your thoughts on them? You've seen Tamori over the years. Um, how good is he? And how good has Zuma become? Well, first of all, uh, I'm really encouraged um, by Tamori's development. I, I watched him a lot in uh, 
in the Chelsea youth sides, and he always struck me as ne- never the standout performer. I mean, it was a you know that that youth team he was in was loaded with talent, not least Tammy Abraham and Mason Mount. But he was he seemed to be seven out of ten every single time, regardless of where he was played in defence, and that was his biggest strength. But I think he's really improved his core attributes, his reading of the game, his poise, his ability on the ball, I think, has come on leaps and bounds. Um, but obviously his speed is what stands out. And when he does make mistakes, which are natural for a young defender positionally, tactically, his speed is able to get him out of trouble. And I think um, he's actually been, in my opinion, Chelsea's most impressive and consistent centre-back so far this season. Although he's had slightly fewer minutes on the pitch than maybe Zuma and Christensen, I don't think he's really put a foot wrong yet. And he seems to have a really cool head for his age. Like Mount, he's got that comfort level of having worked with Lampard last season. Um, so he knows he's trusted. He knows he'll be given the opportunity to develop on the pitch. And, uh, and he's taking it. As for Zuma, I thought he was he was very good against Liverpool. He's, he's recovered impressively from what was a nightmare opening day of the season against United, personally, for him. He, he, he'll always be a little bit up and down, I think, in terms of his performances. Tactically, he can switch off. Um, and he always looks more clumsy than he actually is on the ball. He's quite good technically, Zuma. He's got a decent passing range, but he just he doesn't convince you when he's just shifting the ball around. Um, but yeah, but that's, that's the thing about Zuma, isn't he? He 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 flatters to, to deceive in a way, doesn't he, Andy? I mean, you know, you you look at him and he walks around and you think, oh, he's lumbering, and then suddenly he's sped across the grass and cleared up. Yeah, he's he's got a lot of pace. He hasn't really shown his aerial dominance before this game. Uh, and in this game, I thought he really bossed it in the air, uh, which was something that when he first came to the club was really impressive about him. He got that terrible injury. Um, and obviously, we didn't see him as he went off on this odyssey of loans. But he's come back, and and, and I thought the Liverpool game was, was really the making of him uh, in terms of what what a potentially good player is. He is still young, and I think he still can develop. And, you know, as a, I don't think he'll be the starting centre-back. I think that will probably be Rudiger and Christensen. Uh, but I think he's a really excellent second-choice squad player. Um, and if he can perform like that in big matches, then, you know, he's a he's a brilliant addition to our team. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, we could go through all the players for being amazing, fantastic, wonderful. But I, I guess the, the other person we need to discuss is the grace, the beauty, the power that is this new form, N'Golo Kante. Uh, he's just been quite exceptional, hasn't he, Andy? Yeah, he's superhuman. There's no other word for him. He is superhuman. Uh, he was astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Coming back from injury, clearing up in the midfield, just everywhere, just in the right place at the right time, able to tackle players twice his size, able to nick the ball, able to control the pace, control the tempo. That's an intelligent player, you know. An intelligent footballer in in you know is just a template for for that. Is N'Golo Kante. His goal was outrageous. I love the fact he didn't celebrate it. Just just went back straight back into the second half and went, let's win this game. He is humility, skill, uh, aggression, 
and just sheer brilliance all wrap up. I just love the guy. I think he's an incredible footballer. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, Liam, um, do we have to worry? There's already rumours that Real Madrid definitely want him now. Um, but I read a really strange article ab- about him. I think it was in The Guardian. I think it was Jonathan Wilson who said, it's, you know, Chelsea have this player. He does so much. It's such a shame it, that more people don't do more. Well, hold on. Aren't we seeing actually a player in our team? We've lost a world-class player. If this guy stays fit again this season, we've got a world-class player back and he's right at the heart of the team. And the way he's playing, not in the defensive holding midfield role, it doesn't bother me at all this season. How about you? Well, I think he's arguably the most complete midfielder in world football. And I think it's been that way for for quite a long time now. He's certainly Chelsea's only established world-class player. And can we... Can we move past this? I think most people have, but can we move past this narrative of the fact that he's anywhere near similar to Claude Makélélé? Because he he offers so much more to a team um, in terms of the ground he covers and what he can do in midfield than Makélélé did. He can he can circulate the ball, control possession, and he can actually do things in the final third. If you stand off him he will shoot. He's not got that reputation, but he's a good striker of a ball. And the goal he scored against Liverpool, I think, was, uh, you know, it was almost a, a put some respect on my name moment. They didn't bother closing him down and they paid the price. The only, the only weakness I can see in Kante's game, just to finish, is that he still doesn't know how to celebrate because he just gets embarrassed that everyone's looking at him. Yeah, but, but as Andy says, Andy puts that down to humility. And it's kind of interesting how we can take these things one way or the other. Uh, I, I love the guy. I think, thank God we've got him. I think he will get better and better. The, the other thing that I think is really interesting, and nobody's really talked about it, we've been a little bit hamstrung in so many ways by injuries. I can't remember the start of a season where we've had so many injuries. We pick them up during the games. We pick them up in training. We pick them up here. We pick them up there. And so, you know, Frank hasn't actually been able to sit down and go, this is my best 11 this week and I'm going to play them. Don't you think that's right, Andy? Yeah, I mean, I think some of that's down to having very young players who are not battle-hardened yet. Uh, if you look at the injuries coming to, uh, you know, sort of Mount and and uh, Tamori, these are young players. I know they've played a season in the Championship, but it's a different level of intensity in the Premier League. It's going to take a, a time for them to, you know, to become battle hardened. Um, I think that we'll get past that, and I think the fact that we've got, we're starting to, to, you know, to to look at a decent squad now with cover around the pitch, uh, especially with players coming back like Rudiger, uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi, they'll all be massive additions to our to our squad. Uh, I think we're going to be absolutely fine. But you're right, Frank hasn't had the opportunity to really put the team of his dreams out yet. That That's down the line. But good times are coming. They're coming. OK, I, I just want to mention something with you, Andy, that you put up on Twitter, that uh, we're talking about these young players and and... Look, let's face it, Frank has done more this season with the young players, not just playing them, but getting them to sign contracts. And Callum's just signed his contract, as I predicted he would last season, um, in slightly different circumstances. But anyway, we got there, so I was right. Um, you sit next to somebody who has played an enormous part in some of those players' roles, haven't, haven't you, Andy? Or don't you sit next yeah, to Yeah, I sit somebody? next to a guy called... 
I do. I sit next to a guy called Alf Blanford, who's uh, an older guy. He's in his 70s. Um, and when I first met him, uh, sitting in my seat in the West End, he was just a really nice old boy um, that was friendly and happy to chat about the game and seemed to have some really good insight. Um, and always turned up wearing a sort of Chelsea coat. I uh, didn't realise at the time it was an official Chelsea coat. And we got chatting and it turned out he was a scout for Chelsea. And this was... 15 years ago and he was telling me about these players that were coming up through the youth system that he'd scouted and bought through and at the time like Chris Smalling who didn't you know who didn't make it uh, who didn't uh, get picked up by Chelsea when obviously from Maidstone United to uh, to Manchester United but he was also telling me about players like Ruben Loftus-Cheek and uh, Tamore that he scouted he discovered them when they were eight years old um, and he's always telling me about players that he's discovered on a park pitch somewhere in mid Kent. Um, and you know, lots of his, uh, lots of his players are in the Academy. Lots of his players are at other clubs. He is, uh, a, an absolute, uh, legend. Nobody knows who he is. Uh, if you look at my Twitter account, there's a picture of him on there. And if you see him in and around the ground, you go up and shake his hand because without him, there wouldn't be half the Academy there is now. Uh, I tell you what, maybe you should even have a word with him. See if we can get him on here sometime. I'd love to chat to him because yeah, I'm must... sure he would. I know Liam, you want to talk to him, don't you? you want to do a piece on him? Um, yeah, I mean, he's certainly someone I'd, I'd be interested in speaking to for the reasons that you you said, Andy. Um, I think you know you can go to you can go to a lot of clubs and find stories like this about scouts who found this and that player, but. To, to find one scout who's, who's found so many guys who've gone on to make it at such a high level is is quite impressive, and it's it, it can't be um, it, it can't be an exact science when you're dealing with seven eight year olds. But I think it's very very impressive. It's a credit to him, but it's also the credit to what the Chelsea Academy have done once they've got hold of these guys. And isn't it amazing, actually, Andy? I, I think didn't you say that uh, do, do Chelsea give him tickets or? What happens? No, he buys his own. He buys his own season ticket. Him and his him and his son, or other members of his family. His wife used to come with him, but uh, she's she's elderly now. But his his son comes with him now, and uh, his grandson. Um, but no, he buys his own tickets, and he's proud to do so. Um, and he's a supporter, big supporter of the club, and. You know, he's there week in, week out, uh, if he's not off in some windswept field somewhere. Um, and he's always got a wise word to say. And the other thing, he's a lovely, lovely bloke. Honestly, go and shake his hand. He's a he's an amazing figure at the club that's humble and low profile, deliberately, um, and has done an amazing amount to, to get us to where we are at the moment. Well, all I can say is God bless Alf Blamford. Um, OK, so moving on, you know, we we, we we will touch on this the VAR thing just slightly again. For for me, everyone's moaning about oh he was just offside or that person was just offside or that only just touched his arm a little. We have the rules in place. Offside a little bit is offside, and and that's it. And isn't there something about you know everyone goes oh it was so deflating for all us fans when the goals as Pilaqueta's goals disallowed. But look at the Liverpool fans. It's like they've scored. Well, we've had it conversely a few days before against Valencia. This is a new set of emotions that come in. The, oh, my God, they've scored against us. Oh, my God, they haven't. It's just a delayed reaction. It's longer. It's still part of theatre. We've got to get used to it. It's very, very painful when it goes against you. But you'll find the joy when it works for you. What do you think about that, Andy? 
Yeah, I said on the day I hate VAR, but yeah. I'm also I'm also pragmatic enough to know that there's no point getting upset about it. It is what it is, and we can gnash and wail as much as we want about it, but it's it's not going away anytime soon. You're absolutely right. It will work for us on occasion. It will go against us on occasion. It's very very upsetting against a team like Liverpool to have a, a goal chalked off. Um, but you know, an inch offside is offside. You have to accept that. You have to get over it. As my son said to me after I was you know losing my mind uh, afterwards, he, he was quite right. God, to get over it and you know at the time it's fair enough to, to throw your toys out your pram and get upset about it but if you get a chance to reflect and be pragmatic about it you need to understand offside is offside doesn't matter if it's an inch or a millimeter it just is yeah i, I liam I, I i guess you'll probably say exactly the same won't you and you know it's like everything for you against you it changes from game to game yeah, exactly. And I think there have been a couple of offside decisions with VAR this season that you can query, particularly you know when they're talking in terms of millimetres. But I don't think Mount's one was one of them. It, obviously, incredibly. But the Spurs one was was, was the Spurs one was a was a shocker. Yeah, and there was a Raheem Sterling one earlier in the season as well, where I think you know given the margin for error of the technology there has to be an admission that you can't judge when things are that close but it wasn't that close with Mount he had a he had a, a foot offside um, as frustrating as it was for Chelsea particularly at that moment of the game they can't have too many complaints and it was the reaction really to that moment that killed them because it pretty much immediately after that Liverpool went up the other end and Roberto Firmino got a header which you just can't give up if you're a team defending set pieces you can't give up an uncontested header in the middle of the six yard box especially okay, well, under six foot okay well here's the, the other uh, point that's worth discussing is zonal marking does it work will it work can it work for us Andy I hate zonal marking. I really hate it with a passion. Uh, fully zonal marking, which is which is what it looks like we're doing. I mean, it's difficult to, um, you know, when you're in the ground to really see what's going on. But having watched the game back, when you've got essentially all of your players along the edge of the six-yard box, you're so static. You're so square. It doesn't, it doesn't give you the opportunity to react quickly enough. I think you've got to, if you're going to adopt zonal market, making a mix of zonal and man marking, nobody on the posts, nobody seemingly anywhere but on the edge of the six-yard area. You've got to pick up the Van Dykes. You've got to pick up the threatening players. They're a big team, Liverpool. They're a very Mourinho team in their size, in their inches. And you've got to pick them up. And, and if you're just going to go zonal, you're going to get killed. I think it's something that Frank really has to look at, really, really needs to look at quickly. Liam, what are, what are your views? Do you, do you like the zonal marking? Uh, give us a quick summing up of that because we've got to move on to predictions. Honestly, I think it's more just a question of execution. I think whatever you do, do it well. And Chelsea haven't defended well, set pieces well all season. It doesn't help. They don't have a lot of tall players in this team. But it's primarily about organisation and aggression. and I don't think Chelsea have, have done it anywhere near well enough this year. But the encouraging sign is that if they do manage to sort it out, there's not a lot else wrong over the last couple of games. They've fixed a lot of the other defensive issues. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it's, it's technicalities now that they've got to sort out. So, yeah, well, that, that leaves the Liverpool game behind. We are developing all the time. We are progressing. You know, Tammy... Perhaps he should have scored a one-on-one. I don't really mind. He's getting into these positions and leaving people like Van Dyke for dead. 
these are all good signs, aren't they, Andy? Yeah, all good. Liam's absolutely right. There's there's so much to be positive about. Yes, we can complain about the set pieces. It is something that needs to be worked. And I'm sure he is. Frank's an intelligent guy. If he's not, I'd be very surprised. No. Okay, well, look, let's, let's wrap up the Liverpool. We've got two games coming up, which on paper, well, we should be through to another round of a cup and we should have our first win at home. First off, we've got Grimsby uh, tomorrow night, Wednesday night. This could see the return of Callum Hudson-Odoi for us. And it'd be interesting to see if uh, perhaps Reese James might get a run out. What's your thoughts on, on tomorrow and a prediction? And will we see even younger youngsters play, Liam? Um, well, Hudson-Odoi and Reese James will both play. Um, that, that's already been confirmed by Lampard. I think they'll both get significant. And we might also see guys like Mark Gray, Ian Martson and Tino Andrian involved as well, which obviously continues this, this incredible youth movement that, that Lampard and Jody Morris are overseeing. I think it's, it's going to add some extra interest to that Grimsby game. I know it's a sellout and I think a lot of people will be, will be watching it with interest from afar as well. OK, give us a quick prediction on the score for tomorrow night, Liam. OK, I'm going I'm to say 3-0. Okay, Andy, what are your thoughts and score, please? Sorry, mate, I just accidentally clipped, uh, clicked on a video of Chelsea v Grimsby Town FA Cup fifth round replay in 1995-1996. Don't know why I did that. Um, it's my birthday tomorrow, um, so I'm hoping it's not going to be a grim Wednesday night against Grimsby. £10 a, t- £10 a ticket. Um, I think it's going to be a struggle to get a full crowd in there. Um, but, you know, if we can see Callum Hudson-Odoi on the pitch, if we can see some other players, maybe, um, you know, some of the, the younger players getting a run out, that, that's always a great thing in the in the Carabao Cup. I can't see it being a problem. I really can't. An easy win, 3-0. OK, well, you've both gone 3-0. I'm going to go for 6-1. I'm not sure we can quite keep a clean <laughs> sheet. So, OK. Right. <laughs> Moving on, finally, then, we've got Brighton at home on on Saturday. It's the age-old three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. It feels weird having games on a Saturday afternoon. I've forgotten what it's like until this year, but uh, how do we see that one going? I think this will be the home Premier League win Lampard's been waiting for. They, they haven't done a ton wrong against Leicester and Sheffield United. They were in, in control of those games and then just let it slip. Brighton have been okay so far this season, but I fancy Chelsea to get it done um, 3-1. Okay, that that sounds like a good prediction. And Andy, over to you for the final roundup. Yeah, Brighton shouldn't shouldn't really be a problem. We've got a reasonably good record against them. They've got six points from their opening six games. They've won two, drawn three, lost one. They're pretty inconsistent by the looks of it. Coming to Stamford Bridge, we should be on a high after our recent games. We just need to get over the line. I think that this, again, should be a reasonably straightforward victory, 2-0. Excellent. Well, that's it. That's it for the Chels for another week. It's been good to chat with you guys. Uh, Liam, as always, thanks ever so much. Lovely to hear from you. And uh, we can let you get back to your fan club now if you'd like to. And uh, <laughs> I will. OK, excellent. They're queuing up there. Um, I can hear them. And Andy, as always, uh, good to speak to you. And let's speak next week when hopefully we're in another round of a cup and we've got three points and our first home win. Up the Blues.
This is a playback media production. Get all the associated links for this podcast at chelseapodcast.net. Sports Social Podcast Network.